Let's bow together in a word of prayer as we open God's word together. Our Father, we do come humbly before you, conscious of your amazing grace, and we praise you. For there is no one that would save us. There is no one that could save us. It is only you. It is only through the amazing good news, the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in him that we stand. It's in him that we come now before your word. And we ask that you would please teach us from your word, that we might learn all that you have for us, and that our hearts might be encouraged and comforted by the truth therein. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last few months, we have been working our way through this series, The End Times According to Jesus, and uh, this has just simply been part of our systematic exposition of the Gospel of Luke, and we had found ourselves in Luke 21, and so as we work through Jesus' Olivet Discourse there in Luke 21, we have been seek to understand all that uh, has been there, that Jesus taught there to his disciples. And today we find ourselves in the final part of that series, part eight of this series. And in Luke 21, we've tracked many developments according or about the end times in Jesus' teaching. And he taught, first of all, about the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come in a few decades um, after Jesus. He also spoke about the events in the distant future. Uh, such as the great tribulation and his glorious return to establish his kingdom here upon the earth. But amid all this teaching, one question that I've received from several of you during this series is, what about the rapture? Where does the rapture fit in? What happens to the church? Where is the church in the midst of all of these events? And so today, I want to take one step out of Luke 21 and seek to answer this question as we wrap up this series before us. And so for this, uh, I want to begin with a chart that I showed you a couple months ago when we, near the beginning of this series. And uh, here you'll notice that the main events, they're in color, they're in the middle, or you have the tribulation of seven years. This is the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy of Daniel 9, 27, and Jesus addresses it in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, and, uh, and others. And then you have the messianic kingdom that Revelation 20 tells us is for a thousand years. There's many passages that speak about this messianic kingdom, but it happens to be in Revelation 20 that we get the number a thousand, that it's a thousand years long. And then that transitions into the new heavens and the new earth when the son hands over the kingdom to his father. And uh, we see that in Revelation 21 and 22. This whole period, though, you'll notice is begun by the event on the far left of the screen there, the rapture, the rapture. In the rapture, the Lord returns to the atmosphere of this earth to receive his people and then to return to heaven with them. And that is why you have that little like bouncing arrow that you see there that goes down and curves and looks to return back up again because in the rapture, the Lord uh, comes to receive his people and then return back to heaven. What you'll also see is that this rapture that's on the far left of your screen is distinct from what I've labeled there in the chart, the second coming that's there kind of in the middle and is after the tribulation and before the millennial kingdom. And so when we talk about the rapture, uh, I want to define it this way. The rapture, that event that you see there at the beginning of the tribulation period that starts out this whole day of the Lord and that uh, sets forth all of these end times events, the rapture is our Lord's imminent return to rescue his bride, the church, before God's wrath is brought on the world in the great tribulation. And he... In this, he will also bring her to be with himself forever. So it's an imminent return to rescue his bride, the church, before God's wrath is unleashed on the world in the great tribulation, and to bring her, his bride, to be with himself forever. This rapture will be sudden. There will be no warning, no signs that precede it which is very distinct from the second coming, that middle uh, return of Christ you see there in the middle of the diagram. As we looked at in Luke 21, particularly in verses 25 through 28, that there are a lot of signs that accompany the return of Christ. There'll be signs in the heavens, there'll be uh, earthquakes, there'll be all sorts of things that will give indication that he's about to return and touch his feet upon this earth. 
But the rapture of the church, there are no signs. There is no warning. And there in the rapture, the dead in Christ will be resurrected. The believers living at the time will be changed into their resurrection bodies. And all will then meet the Lord in the air. He will then take all of his church to heaven to be with him forever. This is the bride for whom Christ gave himself. The bride for whom he purchased with his own blood. He will come to bring to be with him forever. Now we... As a church, in our doctrinal statement, we believe the rapture to be pre-tribulational, which is a long word that simply means that it's before the tribulation, pre-tribulational. And, uh, but there are other Christians who believe that the rapture will be post-tribulational. That means that it will take place after the tribulation. I have a chart just if you're curious, okay, what does that look like? Well, you simply move the rapture from the left side of the tribulation to the right side. And they believe that after the seven years, that the believers will live through this, the church will live through the tribulation. And then at the very end, there'll be a rapture. And uh, then they will immediately return with Christ in his second coming. And so a, a, a difference in terms of believing when the rapture will take place. But there are still other Christians, uh, Bible-believing Christians, who uh, don't believe that a, a, a secret rapture of the church, a translation of the, of the believers from this earth is even in our future. Again, if you believe that the tribulation has already passed or is, uh, is, you know, it took place in the, in the first century prior to 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem, then uh, that was when all of the wrath was unleashed. That's when the tribulation already happened. And so they believe that Christ will return again and that he will come and rescue his, he will, he will uh, save his people and usher into the new heavens and new earth. But uh, there is no rapture per se. And so this morning, I want to show you from the Bible, we care about what the scriptures say. And so we want to open the Bible this morning. And I want to show you why we believe the rapture to be an actual event that will take place and that awaits us, the church, and that this rapture will happen before the great tribulation. Now, this doctrine of the rapture is not just something for some eschatological curiosity that we can kind of go, well, now I know that, and we can just kind of be happy and move along. No, this, this promise of the rapture of the church has imminent practical value for each one of us as believers. No truth is is impractical. All truth of God has value and relevance for our lives. And this one in particular, Jesus gave us so that we as a church would be encouraged, that we would be comforted as we live our lives here in this church age. As we seek to go through the difficult things that God has for us, he wants us to be encouraged. And he gave us the doctrine of the rapture to help us to do that. Jesus wants you to be comforted by the truth of the rapture. And I want you to see that this morning. And so with that in mind, the case I want to make for you today, I would state in this way. The case is that each Christian can be comforted knowing that at any moment our Lord Jesus will return to rescue us from the coming wrath of God and to bring us to be with him forever. Each Christian can be comforted knowing that at any moment our Lord Jesus will return from heaven to rescue us from the coming wrath of God and to bring us to be with him forever. And again, we want to make our case from the word of God. And so we're going to open the scriptures this morning to see this. And I've grouped our uh, discussion this morning, my comments here under four headings. And we'll begin by looking at the first one, which I've labeled wrath. Wrath, God's wrath in the tribulation. This will merely be a review for those of you that have been with us through the, the prior seven parts of this series. You know that we have mentioned this on several occasions, but just for a completeness this morning for us to understand what's at stake. God has promised that he will indeed judge the world in righteousness. He will bring this judgment upon the world during a time called the great tribulation. This wrath is not something that is localized to a certain area of the world. This is worldwide, humanity-wide wrath because of mankind's sin. I've quoted these verses before, but Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 make clear the, 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 the worldwide nature of this wrath. He says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. It is hard to read those verses and, and miss the reality that it is a worldwide wrath and that it is divine wrath. This is not satanic wrath. It is not Satan unleashing his wrath upon the world. This is God Almighty, the holy God that is unleashing his wrath. And why is he doing that? These verses tell us. It's because they have sinned against the Lord. It's because of the sin of humanity. It's because they have sinned against a holy God that God will righteously judge them. There will be a reckoning that is coming. And Jesus made it clear that the wrath coming upon the world during the tribulation was going to be worldwide and it was going to be unlike anything the world has ever seen. Matthew 24 verses 21 and 22 say this, For then, Jesus says, there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. This time that is in, still in the future, the tribulation period, will be unlike anything that is ever seen upon the world. For so, I believe that for Christians to say that the tribulation is something that takes place through all of the church age doesn't adequately address this kind of language. For those that believe that it took place in the first century, 70 AD, I don't think it adequately addresses this language that is unlike anything before nor after. This is totally and completely unique across the whole globe. Luke chapter 21, verse 26, again, talking about what's coming on the world. It's Jesus said, people will faint with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Luke 21, verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. All right, I may be belaboring the point, but you, you, get, you get the point, is that this wrath in the tribulation period will be worldwide. And this won't just be for part of the tribulation, half of it. This is going to be for all of the tribulation. The book of Revelation, which the bulk of the book of Revelation describes this tribulation period, uh, the, namely verse uh, chapter 6 through chapter 19. And John writes that all that is happening upon the world during that tribulation period is the unleashing of God's wrath upon the world. In fact, the book of Revelation has the word wrath 11 times throughout the book. And in chapter 6, right at the beginning of this tribulation period, humanity cries out to the mountains and rocks and says this, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It is because of this wrath coming upon the world that Jesus exhorted believers in the passage we saw just last week in Luke 21, 36, that we are to pray to escape all these judgments and to stand before the Son of Man. It's because the wrath is real. It's because the wrath is coming. It's because the wrath will be un in inescapable. That God, that Jesus was concerned that his followers, his people, would seek to escape that which is coming. Now, the point of his exhortation that we looked at last week, that they would pray that they may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, is not that some believers will escape and others will not. The point is that all those who are true believers will persevere to the end, will have that strength, and will escape God's wrath. Because, you see, they continue to trust Christ all the way to the end. That is the doctrine of perseverance, is that those who trust Christ, trust Christ to the end. Now, all those who do not persevere, who are not able to stand before the Son of Man, are those who do not trust Christ, and therefore they will not escape the judgment. And so that's the major question. Who will escape and who will not? Who will have to go, who will have to sit in and under the wrath of God, and who will escape from experiencing that wrath? And I believe the scriptures are clear that those who will escape the wrath of God will be the church. All of the church, everyone in the church, all believers who are trusting in Jesus Christ will escape the wrath of God that is coming upon this planet. And that leads us to the second heading. We've looked first at wrath. Let's look secondly at rescue. The second term for us to look at this morning is rescue. Jesus will rescue his bride. And friends, we are given assurances all over the New Testament that we who have been united to Jesus through faith by faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will never experience the wrath and condemnation of God. 
let me say that again, that those of us who have been united to Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit will never experience the wrath and condemnation of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says clearly, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Believers will not experience the wrath of God. It's very clear, and it's because of Jesus. Romans 8, chapter 1, declares this glorious truth. Many of you know it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in this passage, the condemnation he's talking about is the condemnation of the law. And when the law condemns, what comes after that? Well, punishment comes after that. After condemnation comes punishment, and punishment is the just reward if we are condemned because the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6, 23. But every believer, every Christian has been united, been fused to Jesus Christ by faith. The power of the Holy Spirit has enabled us to be able to be united to our Savior. And because of that, you can't experience condemnation from God. You can't experience wrath from God because you are united to his beloved son. You won't ever experience his judgment. You won't ever hear a guilty verdict towards you. You won't ever be sentenced to experience an ounce of God's wrath. And why is this? It's because Jesus has rescued us from that wrath that let's remind ourselves we justly deserve. Jesus rescues us from wrath. This is the point that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians. So I want you to turn there with me to 1 Thessalonians. We'll spend some time in the Thessalonian letters this morning. Paul had much to say, particularly about the end times in these letters. We won't be able to tap into all the, the verses that talk about that, but just a few of them. Again, we're looking at how Jesus rescues us from God's wrath. I want you to see this first in Thessalonians 1, verses 9 through 10. Here he's talking about the Thessalonian believers, the church there in Thessalonica, and he describes their conversion. He describes how they were saved. And look at what it says about them. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead and Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So you see the linkage here. There's conversion. They turned to God from serving idols. That 180 degrees of repentance and faith is described here as conversion. And they did that in order to serve the living and true God and verse 10 to wait for his son from heaven. You see, built into their baby faith was this eschatology, this end times hope that Jesus was going to come back and that he who was raised from the dead, Jesus, would come and deliver us from the wrath that was yet still to come. Jesus would save us from the wrath to come. But now let's go to the last chapter of this book, 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians 4 in a little bit, but first let's look at chapter 5. We've looked at this uh, last week briefly. We see, look at verses one through three. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So here's the context of what Paul's talking about here in chapter 5. He's talking about, number one, about the day of the Lord. That period of time that incorporates all the eschatological events from the rapture to the second coming and the tribulation in between. But in this day of the Lord, what is, how does he describe them? Well, he, he describes them as destruction, bringing destruction upon humanity. There's that wrath again. Sudden destruction, in fact. And he says, they will not escape. So there's, a categories, there's two categories of people upon this planet. Those who will escape and those who will not escape. Now we as the church, as Paul goes on to instruct in verse 4, is we are not to be surprised by this wrath that is coming. 
Because, verse 4, it says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But, verse 8, we belong to the day. So we're not, we belong to the day. We are not walking in darkness. We should not be surprised. We should be alert and be ready and awake and therefore not be surprised when this day of the Lord, when the judgment comes. We are to stay awake. And so Paul exhorts us, pick up again in verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So, because we are children of the day, we are to suit up. We are to put on God's armor. You know, uh, famously, the armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and those describe uh, different elements. Here, Paul draws on that same Old Testament analogy, labels them a little bit different, but the point is that we suit ourselves up in Christ, that we put on all the salvation that we have in Jesus, recognize what we have in Him, and therefore we are able to stand. Therefore, we are able to continue in faith and in love and in the hope of salvation. And so he says that we put on this, for a helmet, a hope of salvation, this protecting of our thinking capacity and recognizing that we have a hope, that we have a hope of salvation, of being saved from the wrath that is to come. Because, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath. Church, we have not been destined for wrath. That is not part of our destiny. That is not part of our future. But rather, what is part of our destiny? but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what kind of wrath is he talking about here? Is he just talking about the lake of fire, the final very end kind of wrath? I think the context of this chapter we've already seen is the day of the Lord wrath, is the wrath that's coming upon the, the earth that will surprise everybody. This is the tribulational wrath. And so... This is the kind of wrath that we are not destined for. I think Paul is very clear that the church of Jesus Christ is not destined to experience the wrath of the day of the Lord, experience the wrath of the tribulation. And why are we not destined for wrath? It's because of the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're once again drawn back to our Lord and Savior, aren't we? It says that we obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Our salvation, friends, is not dependent upon us. Our salvation is not dependent on what we do. Our salvation from that future wrath is not dependent on how good of a Christian we are. Our salvation from that future wrath is dependent completely and wholly upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is where our trust lies. That is where our confidence is. We trust Him at every moment. He will save us on the future day by snatching us up in the rapture. We'll be raptured before the tribulation begins because we are not destined for wrath but for salvation. And Paul had already explained to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, which we'll get to briefly, that this rapture was going to happen. And so the fact that they are here, they now read here in verse chapter 5 that they're not destined for wrath would make complete sense. But before we go to chapter 4, I want you to see another promise in Revelation chapter 3. So flip with me to the right a little bit to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 verse 10. And in these letters to the churches, we get some warnings, we get some instruction, and we get some promises. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to one promise in chapter 3, verse 10. He's writing to the church in Philadelphia, and he says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is 
Again, a promise that although written to the church in Philadelphia applies to all Christians, as many of these promises in, these, in chapters 2 and 3 uh, can be said of, that they apply to both the local church as well as to churches in general. And Jesus mentions that here in this verse that there's an hour of trial that's coming upon the world. An hour of trial. And this, I believe, best fits with the reality of this future tribulation period that Jesus talks about in terms of being a tribulation that it would be unlike anything the world has ever seen before. Here he says that it's coming upon the whole world. It's to try those who dwell upon the earth. And I don't think this hour of trial can apply to a Roman army destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D., it's worldwide, and the book of, Reve of Revelation describes that. Jesus' promise here, get this, is, for, is that true Christians defined here as those who have kept my word about patient endurance. Those who are truly trusting in Christ will keep his word, will endure to the end, and they will be kept from the hour of trial. The, the key word there, they'll be kept from the hour of trial. It could be translated, they'll be kept out of the hour of trial. The, the Greek preposition is very strong. It is out of, that is translated from there, kept from. And yet, those who hold to a post-tribulational rapture, that believe that the church is going to live through the tribulation and then be raptured, believe that this verse teaches that instead we'll be protected in the midst of the tribulation. But that takes this this. This uh, preposition, being kept from, to really mean kept in. Rather than being kept from the, the hour of trial, we're going to be kept in the, in the hour of trial. And I think that does not rightly do justice to the language here. Jesus' promise is that he will keep his people, he will keep his church from experiencing that hour of trial. And this is the promise, believer, that you and I can cling to. This is our Savior's heart for us, his church, that we would recognize that he is going to rescue us. He is going to save us. And so let's see how he's going to rescue us by jumping back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Keeping your fingers nimble this morning, whether you're uh, flipping pages or, or tapping on a screen, but uh, we're jumping back and forth to see what the scriptures have for us. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we get a detailed description of how Jesus is going to rescue his bride. Let's begin by looking at verses 13 through 15 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Stop there for a moment. Here, we see that the Thessalonians are a little worried. They are worried that their loved ones who had trusted in Jesus but have since died. Here, it uses the term asleep. It's a common word throughout the Bible to talk about the fact that they've fallen asleep, they have died, and they're worried that those who have died are going to miss out on Jesus' return. I believe that this is a, uh, another indication that Paul taught them of an imminent return, uh, of imminent rapture of the church because they are expecting it to happen any moment, and now they're worried that those who have died are going to miss out. And so Paul writes this to say, uh, no, 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 you're, you're, you've missed a crucial piece of this. Uh, God's going to come for all of his people, whether they're alive or whether they're dead. He's going to bring salvation for all of them. And so they need not to worry. In fact, he says that, listen, you who are alive actually aren't going to go first. Those who have died are going to go first. And that's where he goes next. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
And so here in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives the details of of this rescue. How is Jesus going to rescue his church? How is he going to come back and save us from the wrath that is to come, the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole earth? Well, it says, verse 16, that the Lord himself is going to descend. He's going to come from heaven, and he's going to be accompanied by three auditory signals, three noises or sounds. First, a cry of command. This is the word for a military command, a a command to the troops to take action. I believe this is the command of the Father. Jesus will return when the command from heaven is given. But then we see that it is the voice of an archangel. We don't know which one this is. There seems to be potentially several archangels, but the only one mentioned in Scripture is Michael. And Michael seems to have a key role in the end times. He's mentioned in Daniel 12 in an eschatological context. He's mentioned in Revelation 12 in an eschatological context. So here is an eschatological context. It may very well be Michael, but obviously Paul did not name him. It's a voice of an archangel announcing that the Lord is coming. And this is accompanied with the sound of a trumpet of God. Now this, I, this trumpet is not the the trumpets of Revelation, but rather this is a signal of the Lord's presence. And this is used throughout the Bible. For example, Exodus 19, verse 16, there's a a sounding of a trumpet that announces that God is there, that God is present. So is the case when he descends from heaven to bring his own. And then it says at the end of verse 16 that the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who had trusted in Jesus but then died and were laid in the grave, they will be resurrected. They will be raised to life, and then it says that those who are still alive, those who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, uh, uh, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so this is what we typically think of when we talk about the rapture of the church. This is where this comes from, the fact that we who are alive, who are still living and breathing here on this earth when Christ descends, that the believers that are left will suddenly be translated and will be taken up, be snatched up, be caught up, it says, into the, the air, into the clouds. The verb caught up here is actually where the term rapture comes from. It's not from the Greek verb because uh, it got translated from the Greek and into Latin and down through the many years since the New Testament was written. And so as it went through different languages, it went into uh, Latin, which was rapio, and then it went into Middle Latin, which is raptura, and then it went into Middle French as rapture. And so as the language continued to get translated, we finally get this word that we now call the rapture. But it comes from this verb here in verse 17 of caught up. The church will be snatched up in the air and will meet the Lord in the air. And 1 Corinthians 15, as a cross-reference to this event, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and 52, describes the change that the believing church will undergo. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, we who are alive will suddenly have our resurrection bodies and will meet the Lord in the air, meeting the dead in Christ. And so, church, what is awaiting us is that Christ himself will come to get us. He will rescue his church from this world before the great day of the Lord, the wrath that he will uh, pour out upon this planet. Now, some teaching this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 think that this passage describes that second coming that you saw on the chart, the, the, the time that Jesus returns to judge the nations and to set up his kingdom. But that can't be for several reasons. First, in the rapture, Jesus only comes in the air. Did you notice that? He comes in the air or the atmosphere of this planet. In the second coming, his feet touch the Mount of Olives. It says Zechariah 14. It's very clear. His feet shall touch the Mount of Olives. He comes all the way to the, he comes all the, way to the planet. In the rapture, Jesus returns to heaven. But in the second coming, Jesus stays here. Jesus is coming to live with us. He's coming to set up his kingdom, to, to reign and rule in those thousand years, and then it ushers into the new heavens and new earth in which this earth is renewed. Jesus stays here. But in the rapture, Jesus returns, and he returns with his bride to heaven. 
In the rapture, only those in Christ are, are impacted. This event talks about the dead in Christ and those alive in Christ. But in the second coming, the whole world will be impacted as Jesus comes to judge the nations. And so, church, we've got to see God's plan for us. Jesus will come to rescue us, his people. We experience many sorrows and griefs in this life, but we will never experience the wrath of God which will be unleashed upon this world. All praise to Jesus. We are not destined for wrath. We are destined for salvation. And he will save us by descending from heaven and snatching us up and away from this earth. And so we must cling to this promise. We must set our sights upon it. Don't lose sight of the promise that Jesus will rescue us. You've heard this before, but for Christians, this life is as bad as it will ever be for them. But for the unbelieving world, this life is as good as it will ever get for them. For wrath and judgment will, is yet still to come. So we've looked first at the, the wrath that is to come. We've now looked at the rescue that will come through Jesus. And I want to look thirdly now at readiness. Readiness. We have wrath, rescue, readiness. That Jesus could return at any moment. We've already seen this truth throughout this series of the end times according to Jesus and, and other parts of the book of Luke. Chapter 12 has a big section about being ready for Christ's return. Chapter 17 has a section. And so I won't belabor this point, but it's extremely important that you and I understand that the scriptures teach the imminent return of Christ, that Jesus could return at any moment. There is nothing left to happen. The next thing on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. There's nothing else that has to fall into place. There's nothing else that needs to be accomplished. There's nothing else that God is waiting for. The next thing is the rapture and it could happen at any moment. It's just, for something to be imminent, it means it's about to happen. It's just around the corner. It doesn't necessarily mean that it will happen tomorrow or it will happen in the next moment, but it could. That possibility that it could is what is found in the, the idea of imminency. And Jesus made this point over and over that people need to be ready for his return. Again, we've read some already this morning that they need to be awake, they need to be ready, not asleep, because he's going to return like a thief in the night, and it will surprise the world. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. This is... Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse. We've been studying Luke 21. Matthew 24 describes Matthew's version. Many similarities, several differences. In particular, I want to focus on one section in verses 36 through 44. Because in Luke 21... It doesn't really have this section. This section is found in other parts of Luke's gospel. But here, in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, after Jesus had described the tribulation and his second coming, then he transitions here in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I believe that this, it, Jesus here is addressing the timing of his coming. The disciples had asked, when are these things going to happen? What is the, the signs that these things will take place? Well, Jesus had described many signs even earlier in this chapter, beginning in verse uh, 29, talking about the, the cosmic signs and the sun and the moon and everything else of when his second coming will happen. That will be very clear. There will be signs that precede it. But then he says here in verse 36 that no one really knows and it's going to take everyone off guard. How can we equate those two things. How is it that there can be the sun is going to go dark and yet everyone's going to be carrying on as if, nothing, as if everything's okay? I think the clue is the rapture because the rapture of the church is what begins the day of the Lord and that is what is going to surprise the world. I believe contrary to what others uh, will teach, even uh, my predecessor, which I tread on hallowed ground here, but uh, he, he, 
and others teach that the, the, in verse 41, uh, talking to, 40 and 41, talking about two people, one taken and one left. Many teach that this is one taken unto judgment and the other left to be saved. I believe that this references the rapture. The ones taken are the ones who are raptured. Because he's talking about the fact that no one knows this day, the fact that it's going to take everyone off guard. Life is going to carry on this planet as normal, like in the days of Noah, in which they're marrying, they're eating and drinking. They're going to carry on like this age is doing right now. But then all of a sudden, it's going to take everyone off guard. And so the exhortation is, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so Jesus made it clear that he is going to surprise the world when he comes. He doesn't know the hour. You notice verse 36, only the Father knows the exact day and hour that that's going to happen. But the, this reality of Jesus' coming soon, that it's just around the corner, that could happen at any moment, is found throughout the New Testament, but particularly the book of Revelation. And again, this is the book that talks about the future, and it's indicated several times throughout the book. Take the opening verse of the book. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. These things are going to happen soon. Revelation 3, verse 11, Jesus said, I am coming soon. Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. And then Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, the last thing that, that the Lord wanted to impress upon his church for it to stick in our minds, he says three times, I'm coming soon. 22, verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. 22, 12, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one what he has done. And Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Friends, the imminent return of Christ is a foundational doctrine of the church and we cannot lose sight of it. It's my contention that a pre-tribulational view of the rapture best preserves this teaching of the imminence of the return of Christ. For him to come at any moment, he has to be able to take everyone by surprise. So we've seen first wrath, we've seen secondly rescue, thirdly readiness, and finally let's look at relationship. And this is, this is so sweet, relationship. So we shall always be with the Lord. Again, let me remind you, I'm making the case this morning that each Christian can be comforted knowing that at any moment our Lord Jesus will return to rescue us from the coming wrath of God and to bring us to be with him forever. And the key part of this whole thing, friends, is the fact that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with the Son of God. Now, right now, you and I, who have believed, who have trusted in Christ, have a relationship with Jesus. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. This is what makes Christianity so unique. It's not just a God that we bow down and worship. It's not just a, a religious book that we follow. It's a God that we're in relationship with. It's a God who has united himself to us, who has, done, who, has, who has cleansed us by his blood and united us to him that we might know his glory and his salvation forever. But there's a sense in which our relationship isn't totally complete. We have the Lord with us, but there's also a sense in which we're not present with the Lord. And, and, uh, and Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, we know that while we are at home in the body, that's now, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's saying, listen, right now we are, we are away from the Lord. There's a certain sense in which there's a distance between us and our Savior. And so it is natural and right that we as believers in Christ long to be with Christ, that we long to see our faith turn to sight, that we see him with our own eyes. But during this age, we just see him with the eyes of faith. And yet we are separated bodily. We're separated from his direct and immediate and full presence. Of course, we have the spirit that binds us together with Christ. But this relationship that we have, the sweetness that we have with our relationship with Christ now only makes us long for the fullness in the future, for the full reunion. And so we, we cannot forget that Jesus will return for us when that faith will be made sight. 
Christen. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 27 and 28 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus will come back to save his church. And so the, tr the truth of the rapture, friends, should encourage, should comfort our hearts, because in it we have the promise that the Savior is returning to save us. In it, we have the promise that we will forever be with the Lord. After the rapture, friends, we will never have to be separated from Jesus ever again. This is the amazing reality. This is what we long for. This is what we hope for. Let me remind you how that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 ends. He says, those who, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And he says, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Oh, friends, let us encourage one another with the words that we will always be with Christ. This is our great hope. Even though our suffering now is great, we will always be with the Lord. Even though we may struggle to find hope in the here and now, we will always be with the Lord. Even though our hearts may be weighed down with pain and difficulty in this life, we will always be with the Lord. And I think one of the things that can dampen our expectations of this return of Christ is that we lack clarity regarding the heart of Christ. We think there's this transactional relationship in which Jesus saved us, died on the cross, gave us a new passport. Okay, you're saved, you get to go to heaven. Okay, great, and the, the, the transaction's done. But we need to not recognize that Jesus did not just do a transactional thing in giving us our salvation. Jesus gave of himself. His heart is for us. And I wanna finish this morning by looking in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Here is the upper room, discourses of the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's spending his last moments with his disciples. They're having the Passover meal together, and he's giving them the final instructions before he leaves. And in 1333, Jesus had told them that he's going away, and they're kind of freaked out by this. Oh, no, he's going away. They're distressed. It's hard for them to imagine that this, this Lord and teacher that they've walked with is now leaving. And so chapter 14, look at it, verse 1 through 3 begins this way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He says, let your hearts be, not be troubled that he wants his disciples and by extension us, the church, should not be worried, to not be troubled any longer. He tenderly wants his people to be at ease and that includes you this morning, believer. He wants you to not be troubled. And so he says to believe in God, believe also in me, trust in God, trust also in me. This is a personal trust in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. We need not worry, but we need only to trust in Jesus and his father. They have a good plan. They have a plan for us. And what is that good plan? He reveals it in verse uh, two and three. He says that his father has many rooms and he's going to prepare a place for us. And he goes there on ahead of us. He goes to prepare a place. Where is the father's house? It's heaven. That's where his father lives. And he says he's going on ahead to prepare a place for them. Now, is Jesus get, putting on a tool belt and uh, getting some construction and, and like preparing and having to build a place? Well, no, it just seems to be a, a, a metaphorical uh, description here that Jesus is going to get things ready. Isn't it make a big difference when somebody says, oh yeah, I've got a place, you can stay there if you want to, versus I'm getting a place and I'm getting it all ready for you. You feel the welcoming uh, allure to want to come and to stay in that place. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is the host that is getting everything ready for us. There's a welcoming spirit. There's a heart that wants the guests to come to him. And he wants it so much that look at what he says in verse three. He's gonna come back to get us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is the promise Jesus gives his disciples and friends, this cannot refer to his final return, his final second coming, when his feet land on the Mount of Olives and he judges the nations and he sets up his kingdom because here it says that Jesus is not coming to stay with the disciples. It says he's going to come bring his disciples up to where he is. And that can only apply in the rapture of the church. Heaven is the destination. Jesus' promise here fits best with the rapture. And this is the only place uh, outside of, of Matthew 24, where I believe the rapture is mentioned in the Gospels. 
But I want you to notice as we close this morning, the last phrase of verse three, that where I am, you may be also. Friends, this is the heart of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He wants you to be where he is. And he has done everything necessary to make that a reality. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin, upon reading these words, wrote this. He says, it is as if he, Jesus, had said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am so that we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my Father's company. If I have not you with me, my heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. Oh, church, we cannot miss the wonderful declaration that Jesus longs to be with us, his bride, his people. He desires, not just collectively, he desires individually that you be with him. Do not blur the Savior's love. Do not hide his heart behind these great truths, but see the personal nature that is found in each one of these, that Jesus wants you to be where he is at, and he will come to rescue you. Whether you die and are laid in the grave, he will raise you, or whether you are alive and he will transform you, but he will come to get you, and he will rescue you. He died so that you might have a relationship with him. Won't he come to finish that and to make that complete? Well, I ask you this morning, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this great Savior who has given himself that sinners might be saved from the wrath to come? There is yet time now to turn to him, to repent of your sins, to be saved from that wrath to come. But let me tell you that if you fail to do so, if you continue in your stubborn rebellion against the Lord, if you continue to try to live life your own way, then the, what the Bible is very clear is that there is wrath to come. And yet there's, God is patient with you today because right now you're hearing his word that there is life available to you if you would but turn, if you would humble your heart, if you would realize that there is salvation found in Jesus alone, trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf. And therefore, you have a ticket for heaven, not because of your goodness or righteousness, but simply because of his goodness, his grace, his righteousness that's been imputed to you. Look to him and find that his blood is powerful enough to cleanse you and to bring you forever into heaven. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning, the wonderful truth of the rapture of the church, that we will be rescued that Jesus who died to pay for our sins will indeed come to rescue us again and to complete the salvation that he began, to give us new bodies, to give us a new home. Father, I pray for us as a church that you would help our hearts to be resting and settled in what Jesus has in store for us. And then I pray for those, Lord, who do not know Christ who continue to chart their own way in life, who continue to reject what Jesus has given. Oh Lord, may you kindly open their eyes this morning. Would you please soften their hearts? May they see with a realness the wrath that is to come and may they see with a realness the tenderness of your heart for sinners. And may they run to you. May they put their faith in Jesus and may you give them salvation. Yea, today we pray. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.